Do I do? Excellent. Thanks, Sully. Well, several years ago, I attended a worship songwriting conference, and during the workshops, a rather scruffy, rough-looking pastor from New York City got up and began to tell quite a personal story. He told about how the year before, he had finally met the woman of his dreams. They shared everything in common. They grew in trust for one another, and he began to envision a life together as a married couple. His story was much longer than I'm going to share today as he recounted the details of their courtship and the layering of a foundation together. And so finally the day had come when he was going to propose to her. He had saved up, bought a ring, and for safekeeping he put it in his pocket of his jeans. And then he headed over to her apartment to pop the question. But when he arrived at her apartment, she answered the door, and before letting him in, she said, I need to tell you something. I don't think this is going to work anymore, and I just want to be friends. Those of us in the room went silent. We could feel his pain. We've all been there with heartache and disorientation and wishing things could go back the way they were. And then he began to sing a song he had written about the breakup. And I can't quite remember the melody, but it was kind of a bluesy, I've got a ring in my pocket, bought it for my girl. I've got a ring in my pocket. She done changed my world. And the song carried on. It just kind of recounted this sad tale, always returning to the lyric, I've got a ring in my pocket. It was both humorous and tragic all at the same time. Well, most of us were wondering, why is he singing a song about a breakup in a worship songwriting workshop. And then when the song finished, our answer came. He told us that he believed every worship service should start with a breakup song. That we should come to worship prepared to break up with beliefs that don't draw us closer into love with God and love of neighbor. That there are beliefs we've held about God or society has told us about God or about the church or about an interpretation of scripture, and sometimes those beliefs keep us from learning more about God and learning more from God. Some beliefs can keep God from Jesus' message in a, fi in a finite understanding and also limit our participation in the infinite unfolding of God's redemptive creation. So maybe we've held beliefs about God or about God's judgment or God's inclusion and God's kingdom that have kept us from loving others or loving ourselves. If we were to break up with some of these beliefs, we may discover that faith can be reborn, not as a stronger or purer set of beliefs, but as something bigger and deeper and richer, a way of life, which Jesus tells us is a way of love. Our scripture reading today comes from Galatians, one of the letters or epistles written by the Apostle Paul. Paul, you may remember, had been raised a Jew. His name had been Saul, and he was a Pharisee, and he had participated in the persecution of the early disciples of Jesus. Well, he had a conversion experience with the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, 
and would then become of the most, one of the most influential leaders of the early Christian church, preaching the gospel, traveling from Jerusalem through Asia Minor, Greece, and Rome. Paul's ministry focused his preaching to non-Jews, extending Jesus' salvation to Gentiles. Well, here's the situation. Paul had converted a number of Gentiles to faith in Christ in the region of Galatia. But after he moved on, other missionaries or teachers of the early church came through and insisted that believers must follow the Jewish law in order to be fully right and accepted before God. Specifically, that men in these congregations had to accept the Jewish rite of circumcision. And the church in Galatia appeared to have been persuaded. In this letter to Galatians, Paul is imploring them to break up with this belief. Paul told the church of Galatia that for a Gentile to be circumcised was not just simply unnecessary, but it was also completely missing the point. I'll read several selections from this letter to the Galatians so that you might hear the essence of Paul's message, and you'll definitely hear a tone. This epistle appears to be the only one that doesn't begin by Paul thanking God for the congregation. Paul was not happy about the exclusionary beliefs the Galatians were clinging to. Here we have, starting from Galatians chapter 1. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are confusing you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to what we proclaim to you, let that one be accursed. As we have said before, so now I repeat, if anyone proclaims to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, let that one be accursed. Am I now seeking human approval or God's approval? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still pleasing people, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You have heard, no doubt, of my earlier life in Judaism. I was violently persecuting the church of God and was trying to destroy it. I advanced Judaism beyond many among my people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors." But when the one who had set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles, I did not confer with any human, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me. But I went away at once into Arabia, and afterwards I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other apostle except James to the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard it said, the one who formerly was persecuting us is now proclaiming the faith he once tried to destroy. So all throughout that scripture, that, lesson, that letter, Paul is establishing, additionally in the next verses, that the message he is given 
isn't founding in the Jewish scriptures and laws. It's revealed to him through Jesus. But apparently, those of the missionary circumcision party wanted the Galatians to complete their faith by embracing all the law, just as Jews expected of full converts to Judaism. In Jewish belief, such converts became members of God's people when circumcised in the flesh. Paul's anger at this situation is strong from the outset. He made clear that anyone who proposed such a thing had perverted the gospel. The message that a person has to perform works to have salvation was totally unacceptable. And this belief also suggested that there was a distinction between Jew and Gentile before God. Any superiority of one person over another was counter to Jesus' message. In Galatians 3.28, Paul emphasizes this. He says, there, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. He needed them to break up with this belief. He was offering something bigger, deeper, and richer, a way of life, which Jesus tells us is a way of love. And so he basically discusses the circumcision requirement promoted by the missionaries in all six chapters and does not make the reader read between the lines. In Galatians 5.12, he says, I wish those who unsettle you would castrate themselves. In some of the translations, he says, when they go to circumcise themselves, I wish the knife would slip. <laughs> so Paul was very passionate about calling on the Galatians to break up with this belief. And he adds this directly after, for you were called into freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become enslaved to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul's letter ends with, See what large letters I make when I am writing in my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who try to compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Even the, the circumcised do not themselves obey the law, but they want you to be circumcised so that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything, but a new creation is everything. When beliefs single out some people as being right with God and others on the outside, we are missing the moment of all that God is doing through the unfolding of God's new creation. But sometimes the Christian church has been about defining who is in and who is not, right beliefs over wrong beliefs, where God is, where God isn't, picking and choosing who and what God has God's image and who and what doesn't. Several weeks ago, a local Boise pastor was featured in a TikTok video that went viral. His sermons contained deliberate dehumanizing references and hate speech against LGBTQ plus persons. He quoted scripture taken out of context and invoked God's violent judgment. 
an interfaith group I'm part of, it's called the Interfaith Equality Coalition, responded with a letter to the Boise community and to this pastor to make clear that scriptures are clear, that all are made in God's image, and that our highest calling is to recognize and respect the sacred dignity of all humanity as we seek to love one another. Nearly 30 faith communities in our Boise community signed this letter. The pastor then stated, in response to our letter, that he would be willing to meet to discuss our response. And so I followed up with some emails and a voicemail and waited, only to finally be told that he would not meet with me because I'm a woman. And he quoted the first Timothy Chapter 2, King James Version, it says, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor usurp authority over a man, to, but to be in silence. It still does shock me that there are beliefs that are deeply held in some Christian spaces. But the Spirit continued to move in the midst of this hateful and horrific perversion of Scripture, and a recent Boise High School graduate reached out. She was tired of the negative narrative of the church and the impact it was having on her classmates, many of whom were part of the LGBTQ plus community. And so we organized a small panel of interfaith leaders and a group of about 15 of her friends. We met on a Tuesday evening, week before last, and they asked us questions about scripture and tradition and how our faith communities seek to include all people, especially LGBTQ plus. And we heard stories of teens who had grown up in their church, had been in youth groups, gone on mission trips, but when they came out, their pastor told their families they had to choose. Either their child repented or their family could no longer attend that church. In fact, many of the students present told about their previous affiliation and involvement with faith communities but could no longer be part of a place that saw them as a sinner because of their identity, their personhood, the child of God they were created to be. Many told us they had given up on religion and admitted that they weren't sure what they would be hearing at the panel that night. They were gratefully surprised to hear the affirming words that they are loved for who they are and that they bore God's image. The scriptures that some will use to exclude or condemn others are not only taken out of context, but they are also used to have power over others, which is completely missing the point of Christ's message. Well, on the panel that night was a Christian transgender woman. And after the panel discussion, the students stayed for a while to talk with each of us, and I later found out that one of the teens had recently come out as transgender and came specifically to hear what our panelists said and to meet her. The teen could barely get her words out as she sobbed and hugged the panelist and thanked her for giving her hope. And God was there in the hugs, in the laughter, in the sadness of injustice and the safety of that space where all experienced love without condition. Love creates a spirit of wonder and curiosity and love frees us to invite. Fear generates anger and distrust and seeks to squash wonder and impose beliefs. And there are beliefs 
we need to break up with so we can be free to invite and free to be curious and wonder, are we able to hear and see where God is moving? Because we're never out of range of God's voice and God's presence, but it's become so hard to pay attention as of late with so much hurt and violence and anger in our world. Reverend Leonard Sweet says, it's a bit like we live in an attention deficit culture where it seems we're better at gaining attention than paying attention. <laughs> Reverend Sweet describes our current situation as, and I think I've got a slide up there, furiously beating bushes that advance our interests while not paying attention to burning bushes that showcase God's activities. I came across a poem several years ago. Each time I find it and read it again, it reminds me to pay attention, to remain curious, to look for God in new ways. And when we can see the image of God in faces or places or circumstances where we haven't seen God before, the circle just keeps widening and God becomes present in more places and more, pla and more faces. This poem has helped me widen my curiosity and accept the invitation to live with God everywhere. It's called God is No Noun. God is no noun and certainly not an adjective. God is at least a verb and even that shrinks her. God is not so much a woman as she resides in the improbable hope of brown mothers. God is not so, not so much a man as he is at work in the memory of my grandfather's laugh. God is not trans. God swims in the tears of the one who sees her real self at long last in the bathroom mirror. God is not black, neither is he white. God is waiting in the contradiction of songs from slave shacks. And I have seen God in the alabaster smiles of children at play. We're getting Michelangelo all wrong. God is not the bearded one surrounded by angels floating over the Sistine. He is not Adam with his muscled back pressing the earth. No, God is in the closing inch of space between their reaching fingers. Don't believe for a moment that God is Catholic. For God's sake, he isn't even human. Have you heard the wood thrush when the sun glistens the Huron? Can you see the flowers, how they speak to bees without a word? Still, God is no spring blossom, no wood thrush. God is neither the sun nor the bee. God is what you see in the blossom. God is when you hear the river and suddenly discover how much of it is a part of you. To be clear, God is not you. God is somewhere in the 14 billion years which have come to mean that you are. God is at least, after all, a verb. She is neither Pharaoh's rod nor Moses' staff. We must be the ones to cease our slavery. She is not interested in blame. Neither does she offer praise. Truth, gratitude are ours to breathe. She will not have your answers. She is too large for answers. She dances too wildly to be fastened to them, and answers are nouns anyway. God is at least a verb. 
twirling in the radiant reds of spring blossoms, singing in the rare silences between rapid opinions, attending to the tears of dark-skinned death, learning in tiny alabaster smiles. God is waiting in the space between fingers that might connect. He is waiting for us to stop naming her. She is waiting for us to see all of him. God is waiting to be unshrunk. Can we break up with beliefs that shrink God, beliefs that shrink Jesus' message and calling to live a way of love? Can we pay attention to the invitation of what is already happening all around us, that we might see God in the budding of a tomato plant, the smile of a gardener, the tireless determination of a research scientist, the hug of forgiveness between family members, the grand movement of clouds across the sky, the words of comfort from one friend to another, the closing inch of space between our hands reaching out towards another. And then can we point to this? Can we point to how this love is accessible to everyone? And oh, how we need everyone on this great big family with diversity of experience and giftings and personhood to point towards the varied and subtle and beautiful and healing movement of God in our lives and our world. We can't just do this ourselves. We need others to point out where God is. We need others to be the ones to point this out for all of us. And I think in its most simple and profound way, this is evangelism. We don't use this word very often in Methodism. And of course, the word might come with a little baggage for some of us as we were given ultimatums with a little dash of fear of not being saved. Or maybe we had a sense that it is our responsibility to ensure a certain number of souls are saved. But after a course I had in seminary a couple years ago on this topic, I am now able to say this word without flinching or producing a nervous giggle because I have realized that this action, this mission that Jesus gave to us, the church, is at the very heart of what we're called to do. We come to church each Sunday and share about ways God is present in our lives. We confess that we fall short some days, but we're forgiven, always forgiven. We ask for help and trust that God hears our prayers. We experience that we are loved with no conditions. We are led by God into areas where God's creation isn't thriving, and we're called to do something about it. This weekly practice and work that we do in community with one another at Collister has a so that to it. Some of you might remember a message I gave last fall using the Mobius strip. It was kind of a failed craft project that I tried to do with everyone. But the metaphor of this object still remains. It's that we come to church, and then we are sent out again. And then we come back to church so that we are sent out again. There are no edges, there's no stopping, so that we can share this good news. This is for all people, and the beliefs that anyone from, ex and beliefs that anyone from experiencing the fullness of God's love and purpose is a belief that needs to be broken up with. I've got one final slide up here, I think, Sully, kind of a nerd alert for um, the Greek 
word of evangelism is euangelion. And you means good in the very best sense. Angelian means angel or messenger. And so it means a message of the highest good God has to offer. And we are called to convey God's goodness to our world. What if the first step to conveying God's goodness to our world was simply every person we notice, every person we brush up against, we see as a child of God, that God is already present in that person's life. And aren't all people deeply longing for encouragement and love and help in noticing the presence of the divine in their lives? And maybe step two is paying attention Noticing the places and spaces that Jesus is alive and active in our world, in our community, in our family. Quick story uh, about a time when I was pretty, it was pretty easy to notice Jesus' activity. Several weeks back, I volunteered at Interface Sanctuary. And as I was checking in some of the guests, I overheard a conversation across the reception area to where two of the guests were talking. One said, how about that sermon today? And the other said, wasn't it wonderful? And the music. And they went on and talked about how filled up they were. And then the first guest said, as they went towards different sections of the shelter, see you next week? The joy and the peace and acceptance was evident on their faces and in the space they held as they reflected on their experience. And God was right there. Mm -hmm. And I'm so filled with gratitude and hope that I was paying attention at that moment. It's a story that connects me to God's love and presence, and it connects me to my neighbor, those neighbors that are just down the street. And then maybe step three could be that we all work individually and collectively to know Jesus well enough to recognize where his spirit is moving in our day. This could look like reading and discussing scripture. This could be holding space for a daily devotion time, coming to church on Sundays, and other rhythms that give the Spirit space to equip us. And then how about step four? That we point this out to others. That we point out ways God is alive and moving so we might convey the message of God's goodness in our world. So may we accept this day that we may need to break up with beliefs that limit or shrink God's love and redemption. Beliefs that shrink Jesus' message of the goodness of God, of forgiveness and healing. Beliefs that shrink the Spirit's movement of inclusion and the invitation to be part of the unfolding of God's kingdom here in Boise. And maybe we need to break up with beliefs that keep us from fully experiencing God's love and from fully loving others. Please pray with me. Mm. Loving creator, Christ and spirit, we are grateful this day for your transformational, unconditional, reckless love. We pray that our words and actions would reflect your likeness. Help us to be part of your redeeming and healing work in the world that we might live into the good news in its fullness and live into your story of new hope and love and healing for the world. 
May we accept your invitation to be part of restoration in places in which your presence has become hidden or misrepresented. Give us courage, Lord. Help us to love and be tender and also be determined. Help us to cooperate with the movement of your spirit this new day and each day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.